right. So I am doing just an AMA tonight. So if you have questions, uh, get in the queue now. I'm going to start taking them in like two minutes because I uh, wanted to do a call-in tonight. But um, I would like to do one where I'm not doing, uh, you know, at least the overwhelming majority of the uh, the talking. Uh, I just finished a very long road trip. I left Atlanta on uh, Saturday last week, and then I stayed in New Orleans that night. Um, got to uh, uh, actually the next morning. Got to. Uh, tour the current affairs offices in uh, New Orleans, took a picture of uh, of my dog, Lucy, uh, hanging out of the current affairs office that I posted on social media. And then on Sunday night, stayed in Austin, uh, David Griscom, and then on, uh, or no, sorry, Sunday, I stayed in Arlington, and then Monday in Austin, um, yeah, stayed with a friend from grad school in uh, Arlington on Sunday. Monday, stayed in Austin. And then Tuesday, I was at the uh, Red Roof Inn in uh, Odessa, Texas. Uh, and uh, and I will tell you that the, you know, that like basically, yeah, let's put it this way. The line in the beginning of the book of Genesis about how, uh, there's there's some turn of phrase about how before the act of creation, you know, the version of reality that existed then was just, uh, you know, v- you know, darkness and void upon the earth. Uh, that's that's pretty much what there is between Austin and Odessa, Texas. Uh, very, you know, very scenic void. But there's, uh, you know, I mean, it kind of looks like B-roll from a movie that is uh, is set in, in Texas or maybe from the first season of True Detective. Um but uh, then, um, and that's also pretty much what there is in between Odessa, where I was in uh, uh, Tuesday night, and uh, Las Cruces, New Mexico, which is where I was on Wednesday night. Uh, and then there's a you know a whole bunch more of it <laughs> between Las Cruces and Phoenix, uh, which is where I was uh, Thursday night, and uh, then uh, tonight. Uh, after, um, you know, at least, a, a you know, void with different scenery uh, between Phoenix and where I am now in California, uh, the first, like, God, hundred, couple hundred miles after the Arizona-California border, those first couple hundred miles of California are just, um, I mean, it almost looks like a cartoon desert. Uh, there's just absolutely nothing uh, for a very, very, very long time. So, um Having driven through desert all day at the end of a solid week, seven days in a row on the road, um, I am finally in California where I'm staying with family for a couple of days before I go down to Mexico on Sunday. So after all of that, uh, I, uh, you know, my mind is pretty blank, which is why I wanted to do this as an AMA tonight. I want you guys to, to call in and, and just chat and ask questions about whatever is on your mind. All topics are open. Um, Silver, if you want to call in and talk about modal logic, we can do that. Uh, you know, we could, uh, we could do, uh, we could do literally anything that is on uh, people's minds. Uh, so please do go ahead and get in the queue uh, while I wait for callers. I guess um, 
you know, I, I guess I could talk just for a minute about stuff that I've been working on, but like I said, I, I really do want to make this uh, caller driven. You know, I, I really do want to do this as an AMA. So please do call in with questions. Um, so had a couple things published in the last week. Um, so one of them in the new print issue of Jacobin is an article called Effective Altruism is No Substitute for a Better Society. I am probably going to do a call-in episode this weekend sometime, either tomorrow or Sunday, I'm not sure which yet, uh, that's actually all about that article. Uh, if you're a subscriber to Jacobin, you can read that on the website too, although uh, unfortunately that is uh, that is paywalled. And that's that's kind of my critique of um, the way that people like the utilitarian philosopher Peter Singer, people like William McCaskill, argue for effective altruism as their sort of like main strategy for addressing poverty. Um, and I also have a review uh, that came out in the new, well, it, it's in the new print issue of Current Affairs, but it's also, this one is not paywall. It's, it's free on the Current Affairs website uh, called The South Then and Now, which is my review essay about Adolf Reed's wonderful book, uh, The South, Jim Crow and Its Afterlives. Uh, but I see that I have a caller, so let's uh, let's go ahead. Uh, well, if you don't feel if you don't feel like talking uh, modal logic, you know, if there aren't uh, squares and diamonds uh, swimming through your head, silver, you could also just call in and, uh, and ask about anything else that's on your mind. Uh, but I want to take Scott. Oh, before I take Scott, last thing uh, is that uh, because we are in December and I should be doing this every time I do any sort of show, either here or on YouTube, uh, I do want to plug the live show that's coming up in New York City on January 22nd. So that is going to be the second uh, Give Them an Argument slash This is Revolution slash Left Reckoning joint uh, live show. Uh, first one was in L.A., um, back in October, which was wonderful. It really went really well. Uh, this one, I think, is going to be even better. Uh, we've got our, our guests, uh, the main guests at least, are going to be uh, are going to be Bhaskar Sankara, a good friend of mine, my co-author on The Blueprint, and of course the founding editor of Jackman Magazine. Also Emma Vigland, best known for as the host of the Emma Sports Vigland Network, uh, where she does sports commentary. And Sam Cedar, best known as the voice of Hugo on Bob's Burgers. That should be a lot of fun. Um, if you go to my Twitter, that's the pinned tweet. Uh, has the Ticketmaster link, or they might have just changed their name, I think, to Ticketweb, it looks like, because uh, maybe they've gotten so much bad press, but whatever. Uh, so that's going to be on January 22nd at the Cutting Room, which is like half a mile from Penn Station, New York, very centrally located for everything. Uh, VIP meet and greet is at 5, doors open for everybody else at 6, show is at 7. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to it. And to answer your question, Ann Dogan, uh, and Nogan says in the chat, bro, when are you coming to Dodge City, Kansas? The answer to that is the nanosecond that you set up something for me to do in Dodge City, Kansas. I will come to Dodge City, Kansas. Uh, you know, if, there, if, if you've got a Dodge City DSA that wants me to come talk to them, if you want to do an event in a bookstore, uh, you've got uh, Dodge City State University uh, wants me to uh, come give a talk. Uh, that I am there. I am. I am happy to. Uh, I'm happy to travel everywhere. Um, <laughs> so, and I am doing some of that this spring. I should say, and, uh, January fifth, 
I'm going to be at Western Connecticut State University uh, speaking to students at an MFA uh, writing program. And um, on February 7th, I'm going to be at uh, Texas Tech Law School in Lubbock, Texas, debating a libertarian uh, from the uh, Foundation for Economic Education about capitalism and socialism. So I, I'm really serious about this. I will travel anywhere. Just set it up. All right. With that said, let's go to Scott. Scott, what is on your mind? Hey, Ben. Good to be speaking with you again. Um, the, the first thing, I, I asked you a question a while ago about uh, mm -hmm. Ukraine, and you recommended an article about, I think, uh, like diplomatic realism or something, and I couldn't remember. Oh, yeah. I can, I can look at I know exactly what you're talking about. I don't remember the title, but I can look it up really quickly right now because I know exactly I what that is. Yeah, so that is uh, – so, uh, yep. Okay, so I'm looking at it right now. Uh, it's called How Should the Left Think About Realism in Foreign Policy? So, again, that's How Should the Left Think About Realism in Foreign Policy? That was published in July in Jacobin, it's a interview with Daniel Bessner by Branko Marchetich, and I think it's just a good sort of thoughtful overview of um, foreign policy realism and that whole tradition and the parts of it that are sort of um, good insights that the left should embrace, the parts of it that you know rely on assumptions that are really at odds with what we want. Uh, I would, um, I, I, I think it was a really balanced take. I would, I would recommend that. Cool, cool. Yeah, I found it. Thank you. Um, I, I mean, I, I have a, a huge backlog of Burgess content, so I'm <laughs> not going to be able to talk about much of what you uh, have recently written about. Um, I, my question, I, I have a couple if nobody else is going to ask. Yeah, yeah, please, but, please, uh, please. <clears throat> I mean, I say Straub's here, so sooner or later he'll call in. But yeah, what, what's, what, what's on your mind? Um. Well, you mentioned in current affairs, I, I've yeah. been noticing uh, Nathan's uh, current Twitter fascination seems to be AI art. <laughs> yes. And I was wondering what your thoughts and feelings about how that is going to affect things. Is, is mm -hmm. not, not just AI in general, but specifically about the realm of culture and art and like the chat GPT that has been writing, you know, content for people apparently yeah so uh i do have some thoughts i should i should like start out with a huge caveat though which is that um i have not actually had a chance to like sit down and like you know start a chat gpt account and play with it so everything i'm saying right now is based on my impression from friends of mine who have spent a lot of time with it and uh, from seeing all those Nathan Robinson screenshots uh, <laughs> that he posts. Um, so, um, and uh, one that he sent me, which was actually really remarkable, which is uh, he uh, he asked the chat GPT to um, write an essay, like a short essay, uh, criticizing libertarianism and citing Gia Cohen. Um, and I guess he sent that to me because that's obviously very much up my alley. And I have to say, it wasn't great. Um, like there were things in it that were like a little bit sloppy, but like, that was like, you know, let, let me put it this way. If you assigned that question to like a undergraduate class, this would probably be at the top half of the answers that you got. 
Um, and I've seen a fair amount of stuff from it that's like that. To be fair, not everything. Um, I saw somebody on Twitter today um, showed me a screenshot that was like pretty unimpressive where they like asked ChatGPT to write a Christmas Carol. They just ripped off Silent Night. Uh, but uh, <laughs> like I think word for word maybe, or maybe there was a verse that was different. So, but I have to say, I have seen... Uh, people post screenshots and I've talked to friends who spent a lot of time with it where like, I don't know. It seems uh, kind of remarkably good. Like again, it's not that anything that chat GPT, and I know you asked about visual art at the beginning. And I'm going to get to that, but it's not like anything I've seen chat GPT produce is like brilliant, but Man, a lot of it sure sounds to me like a person could have written it. Uh, and again, like, I actually think just to start with my own kind of uh, stuff I'm a little bit more familiar with before we go to the art example, like, I, I, don't, I had a conversation with a friend of mine who's a, uh, a full-time philosophy professor, uh, and and I told him that I kind of don't see how it's still possible to assign like short uh like electronically submitted kind of like short essays in introductory classes anymore i think cheap chat gpt kind of killed that because even though i know there are issues about a lot of this stuff being kind of a collage of things that pulls from all over the place and i know that's part of the issue with visual art that it's like uh, is the sort of plagiarism like intellectual property kind of issue but I get the sense that it, it like you can give it this little essay prompt and it will spit something out that's well organized that doesn't like there's nothing in it that screams, oh, this is like this is a computer program that doesn't understand anything. It's all stuff that like, you know, would be kind of a B plus introductory <laughs> class uh, effort. And I don't think a plagiarism detector would pick any of this stuff. So what I was saying is kind of like I, I think this is kind of done now. I don't see how you can still assign um essays in uh at least introductory classes maybe undergraduate you like um i don't know if it could do like a 15 to 20 page research paper but like uh certainly the kind of stuff people often do assign in introductory classes i think this might have just killed it made it technologically obsolete you know that you maybe have to to go back to doing like oral exams or something or like at least like handwritten uh um you know, essays because because uh, because this stuff is just too good, uh, and and certainly, I mean, yeah, I mean, we've both been seeing all the stuff that Nathan has been posting on social media, where he'll be like, "I asked the Chat GPT today to." Uh, I'm not going to do a Nathan accent, but you know, <laughs> uh, you know, I asked it to, I asked it to do a picture of you know me and Daffy Duck in the style of Soviet social realism from 1935. And, you know, and it like comes up with something that's pretty good. Um, it, it's kind of remarkable. And, and what I, the sort of half joking thing I said on Twitter today to like really go into, you know, my areas of, of interest is like, okay. Um, people may have seen, we did a video on this on, uh, on the YouTube channel recently, you know, there's this old debate about the Turing test, which actually, uh, a little digressive, but it, but uh, 
just for anybody who's who's listening who's not super familiar. Well, even if you are somewhat familiar with it. Um, so Alan Turing, the uh, guy who's basically probably more responsible for than anybody for computers as we now know them, uh, World War II code breaker, sort of laid a lot of the foundations for computer science. Uh, and uh, there's a Hollywood movie about him several years back called The Imitation Game. Really interesting guy. Uh, he was essentially murdered by the British government after the war for being gay uh, in the sense that they he was like legally forced to take like drugs that were supposed to, I don't know, make him not gay. <laughs> and, uh, and he ended up, you know, screwed with his mental health enough that he committed suicide. But, um, but in any case, um, he has this paper, which I actually remember reading in an undergraduate class. I don't remember the title of the paper, but it's, uh, but it's, it's where he lays out what will become known as the Turing test, which is he starts out by, uh, uh, you know, by talking about, um, this this question of of whether um, computers essentially I mean he's not thinking about it exactly like the way we think about AI now but uh, you know whether computers can think or be conscious or something like that and uh, and it's a, it's really interesting nobody reads this thing which is a shame because it's like just this fascinating little snippet uh, that. His analogy was this game that if I'm remembering this right now, to be fair, I read this thing literally like the class that I took that I read this thing was literally 20 years ago. Uh, But as I remember it, he says there's this like British, like aristocratic, I guess, like party game where um, you'd have people um, like a man and a woman in a a room and people would like um, pass questions under the door and they'd... uh, and they'd like type up responses. It was important that it be typed, not handwritten. Uh, so there wouldn't be a, a tell that way. And you were supposed to guess from the answers, which one was the man and which one was the woman. And uh, and he says basically, well, look, if a, if a computer could in conversation uh, fool people as often as people are fooled about, you know, people's gender in the uh, this imitation game, uh, which is where the title of the movie comes from, although they never explained it in the movie. Uh, I assume it was in an original draft and it got cut. Uh, then, then we should conclude that uh, uh, we should conclude that it's uh, that it's really conscious. And then, fast forward a few decades. This is philosopher John Searle who has um, who has this famous objection to that, which is the Chinese room argument. He says, look, imagine that somebody is who doesn't, who doesn't know Chinese is put in a closed room where people pass in messages that are written in Chinese. They can't understand them, but they have a very detailed rule book. And uh, the rule book says like, if you're, if you have this string of, of like Chinese characters that are passed in, you should respond to it with this string of Chinese characters. And, um, and then Searle's point is he says, well, look, no matter how, like, even if somebody spent 10 years in the room doing this and they got really good at uh, immediately identified, okay, these are the string of Chinese characters I'm supposed to reply to with this one, uh, you would never actually learn Chinese that way. You wouldn't know Chinese as a result of this. Uh, you know, I think it's maybe a little bit Orientalist that he picks Chinese. You know, it's not the Swedish room, but forget that. Uh, the The point is just like, he says similarly, and it, you know, an AI that's been programmed by clever humans uh, 
and to follow a complex system of input output rules, uh, no matter how good it is at, you know, tricking us essentially, um, it wouldn't actually be conscious. It would be impossible to, to sort of get consciousness that way, according to Searle. And there's this complicated argument that philosophers have about uh, this. And people say, well, okay, but maybe the whole system, not just the guy, but the guy and the rule book and the whole thing, maybe the whole system in some sense knows Chinese and like the AI would be more like the whole system than it would be like the guy reading the rule book. Uh, and so the half-joking thing I said on Twitter this morning is, man, now that ChatGPT is just um, eating Turing tests for breakfast, I guess we must have all quietly decided that Searle's right about that after all, huh, right? Because it's like, it, it, it seems like you have an awful lot of interactions where it's, um, uh, where, where it really is. Like, you know, again, I, I think, I literally think it's going to be impossible to do like short essays in uh, intro classes, at least unless you tailor the assignment like much more carefully than people often do going forward because people can just ask uh, AI to uh, to write them uh, to write them for them. Uh, but I'm not even a little bit tempted to say it's conscious and neither is anybody else, I think. Uh, I'm sure somebody out there will at least pretend to be tempted to think this, but you know, I think kind of not really. Um, and so that makes me think this like, oh, I don't know, even though we've uh, historically all said, you know, even though like lots of people that I know, have been very unconvinced by the Searle argument in the past. You know, I, I think some of these same people are like, yeah, I don't know. Okay, <laughs> maybe he's onto something because I'm not tempted to say this thing is conscious. And I guess last thing before I throw it back to you, it, it's just like a, in particular, like I've seen people respond to this by saying, oh, but like it doesn't, if you ask it how it knows or whatever, then it really breaks down. It's like, yeah, sort of. But that's just because it's been programmed to 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 insist that it's not conscious and it's just a program, but like you could just tweak that program very easily, but we still wouldn't say it's conscious. And like, I don't think the fact that we're not tempted to say that, I don't think has anything to do with the fact that like the answers aren't quite good enough or the illusion isn't quite perfect enough yet. So anyway, those are my preliminary thoughts. Although, you know, keep in mind the giant caveat at the beginning. Yeah, there there was well, there was that that Microsoft engineer that had a chatbot that he thought was was uh, yeah, but we just think that guy's crazy, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. <clears throat> what I what I found interesting was seeing a thread about a guy who was using it to help like a pair program. So like mm -hmm. the the uh, the AI was writing code to help him write code. And uh, that, that, like he, it's it's not perfect. Like they're not writing sure. the program, but he could trim it and make it work in what he needed it to do. Um, and Chapo just had a, a great episode with talking with a guy about uh, AI and how he thinks that we've reached a point where, or I don't know if he thought, but people think that there's a point. We're now at a point where AI is now being influenced by AI. Like we can't, we uh -huh. can't go back to a point where it's just taking in human input. Uh -huh. So there, There's a lot of interesting consequences with like the singularity, <clears throat> excuse me, and things like that. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I'll, I'll get out of the way. 
for for the next person. Um, but if you're looking for more, I can jump back in the queue. Yeah, sounds good, man. Uh, I, I will. Um, yeah. So in um, man, that would be really something. Um, you know, so I was talking to my friend Mark the other night, and he's the um, uh, he's he's the chair of the philosophy department at uh, Damon College, I think it is in Buffalo, and um, uh, he well he did something really gimmicky. I'll say in just a second, but um, but you know we we just also had this big conversation last night about how it how it seems like stuff that doesn't seem like it could possibly be real. Cause it seems like, it seems like it's, um, you know, shit from like a futuristic, uh, novel, uh, or, uh, or movie, uh, is happening in a much more rapid clip. Right. You know, cause you think about, uh, past, past things that felt like that nine 11, Donald Trump becoming president. And then you think about like in the last year, it's like, well, major land war in Europe, uh, you know, maybe the beginnings of technological singularity, you know, the, the curve of ridiculous shit that doesn't sound like it would really happen to happen. It is definitely trending upwards for better or for worse. But, um, but yeah, the really gimmicky thing he did is he sent all the professors in his department, this email that outlined all the ways in which people could use, uh, like students could use chat GPT to cheat. And then the PS was, I didn't write this chat beat GPT did, uh, which is true. So anyway, that's gimmicky, but striking. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I like that. Uh, PhD and AHD says AI just needs to learn how to code, man. All right. Uh, Silver, what's on your mind? Carl, just checking the question. Maybe. Uh, can you can you explicate how you mean? Uh, in the Chinese room example, he he insists, "Oh, the computer doesn't know Chinese because the guy in the room doesn't know Chinese." Uh -huh. That seems like it's sort of. I don't know, begging the question to me, but maybe I'm uh, weird. Uh, I mean, it might be. I don't. I don't know that I have a very firm view about this. You know, merits the Searle argument, but. I'm not quite sure I see why yet. Could you say a little bit more? Okay, so he insists that the guy in the room doesn't know Chinese. Mm -hmm. To prove that the Chinese language hasn't been imparted. It's very circular to me. Oh, he doesn't know Chinese because he never learned Chinese. So right. Okay, I think I understand what you're saying a little bit more now. I think um, – so I think the way I'd read the argument would be a little bit different. I think that he's um, – you know, I think that, like, the the guy in the room not knowing Chinese, I mean, I don't think that's, like, a conclusion, even a sort of intermediate conclusion of the argument. Uh, I think that's just kind of a premise. Like, in other words, I think that he – I think that he is counting on the reader intuitively agreeing that obviously the guy would not know Chinese from doing this, that obviously you could never learn Chinese this way. Now, you could dispute that premise, and fair enough, right? But I think that he's I think that he's counting on people just finding that part intuitively obvious. 
And then, then the actual inference is to, well, it would be um, that, you know, AI, you know, we, we shouldn't think that AIs are conscious just because they, uh, uh, just because they could pass a Turing test, which I should say, and I think the title of the YouTube video we did was, uh, can AI ever be truly conscious? And some of Searle's own titles, like I think he has a book called Computers, Can Computers Think, are a little bit like that too. Although I will say that when Searle's being more careful, his conclusion isn't that you can't have a conscious AI. Uh, it's just, you know, that, uh, we shouldn't conclude that an AI is conscious on the basis of, of like any sort of behavioral thing, you know, passing a Turing test. Uh, because after all, uh, you know, he, he does ultimately want to say he's still a materialist. It's, it's not like you couldn't have, um, you know, the, the say, you know, sure, brains produce consciousness, but, you know, perhaps something else could produce consciousness too, right? Perhaps you could have some silicon based thing, not meat based that, that produce consciousness, but he's just saying that you shouldn't, uh, anything that's like just following its program, he doesn't think would be conscious. And so just cause you could like, program something so well that it can pass the Turing test flawlessly. Uh, he, he doesn't think that's a reason to think it's conscious. So in other words, sorry, the TLDR is just this. As I would read Searle's argument, <laughs> that he's counted on everybody starting out by, by agreeing with his intuition about the case he's describing, thinking, yeah, obviously that guy would not know Chinese at the end of this process, no matter how long he spent there. That obviously you could never learn Chinese that way. I think that's the premise. And then the conclusion is uh, you shouldn't think that a Turing test passing AI would be, be truly conscious. So um, it's, and I will say, again, I don't, I'm not entirely sure what I think about this argument. Um, and, you know, but I will say that some of the, most popular responses to it by people who are unpersuaded do seem to grant the first part. They do seem to grant that, uh, oh, of course you couldn't learn Chinese this way. Of course the guy in the room wouldn't actually know Chinese. Like that sort of whole system response I gave earlier uh, that, well, okay, the guy would know Chinese, of course, but the whole system would that, you know, that, you know, the constituted by him and the rule book and whatever else, like the, the room as a whole uh, knows Chinese, which whatever you think about that uh, response, I, I will just note that it seems to just kind of grant that, of course, he himself would learn Chinese this way. The, um, the thing Cyril left out there is that some of the rules should, like he, he uses the word just following its program, which is yeah. <clears throat> the word just is doing a lot of work in that sentence in my mind. The um, the rules, like he, 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 he thinks all the rules were set ahead of time and the guy's just following the set of instructions that was set ahead of time that yeah. doesn't teach him Chinese. But in a, a better analogy to consciousness would be if a bunch of the rules created new rules if they started connecting uh, characters to other characters if the if the uh the system of rules started to uh, learn as it were started to incorporate new connections like if you gave it a new chinese character and mm -hmm. and along with a message that says what it means uh in terms of other chinese characters it would then link it to those other characters and 
it's yep. it gets complicated. But the uh, <clears throat> the other thing is uh, if you look at like uh, chaos theory, yeah. the, um, I mean, all I know about chaos theory is what I could glean from Jurassic Park. So okay, don't don't use that. Look at the. <laughs> Okay. Uh, look at the three body. <clears throat> look at the oh, three there. body problem and and the Mandelbrot set, and then there we go. Uh, the thing is feedback. It <clears throat> systems that feedback upon themselves become unpredictable. Is the basic, yeah. the basic TLDR of it. Uh, yeah. The, uh, like, I think I see how the move works, uh, and that could be right. Right. I'm not sure. I I think that. Uh, Searle makes a really big deal of saying that, well, you know, syntax isn't semantics, that just that sort of uh, manipulating symbols isn't the same as uh, uh, isn't the same as, as like assigning, you know, meaning to those, those symbols. Um, and I think that there's something that does seem intuitively right about that, but then I think in a way what you're getting at is uh, that there is, I I think this obvious objection to what Searle says about all this, which is like, okay, okay, dude, but like, what do you think semantics actually is? Right. In other words, if it's not reducible to syntax, then, then what is it Uh, that if uh, you know, like, like okay, you think nobody could learn Chinese this way, and that that does sound plausible if you're you know talking to you know that 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 setup uh, that you're just um, that you're just uh, like getting strings of symbols and and then uh, uh, rules about how to associate the strings, and you know maybe even if you're uh, if like the rules sort of lead to unpredictable consequences about which strings you should associate in which way, uh, you know, maybe we still would say that that's, uh, we still wouldn't be inclined to attribute consciousness to you, which to be fair, you know, I think that like chat GPT <laughs> probably already clears that hurdle, you know, that the, uh, that, that like, v- you know, various rules interact with each other in extremely unpredictable ways. Um, uh, and, and we're still not tempted to attribute consciousness, but then like, I think that part of the problem is that I think Searle, because it is on the level of, of sort of intuitive gut checks, it's like, it's not really clear, you know, like the more you think about Searle's argument, the more it becomes a bit of a mystery, how anybody learns a language, right? Like, like, okay, you could learn Chinese that way, but like ultimately, you know, what is, um, you know, what, what is, is your actual bio? What is your biological brain doing to learn Chinese? And for that matter, yeah. how do I know that you're, how do I know that you're conscious? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, that, that in other words, that like, you know, it's not clear that he could give a, uh, he could give an account of how your actual biological brain learns Chinese that, that doesn't seem like, it's ultimately a matter of very complicated symbol manipulation. And if we could come up with disanalogies, why you could just, you know, uh, it's like, okay, awesome. Now let's find a way to, to tweak the, you know, how we're imagining the AI working to, to incorporate the disanalogies. Um, so yeah, I think that, 
So the the um, the GPT yeah. doesn't have any behavior. It it only has uh, um, words and symbols or like word manipulation, right? It doesn't yeah, have maybe. So, it doesn't so make what, a plan. You can't you can't you can't ask it to plan for what it's going to talk about next week, uh, and then see it implement that plan. I wonder actually. Uh, yeah, I wonder if that's actually true. Um, I that you couldn't that you couldn't uh, couldn't do it. Uh, <laughs> uh, that you couldn't ask it to to make a to make a play out. I mean, it does seem like again, with the giant caveat that I gave at the uh, at the beginning of of the discussion with Scott about how. Um, you know, most of this is, you know, secondhand or all of it, right? Is secondhand sort of based on conversations, based on screenshots. But my impression from talking to people who have spent time with it is that it does uh, seem to, you know, sort of, I mean, I'm, I'm very reluctant to use, use words like remember uh, or, you know, retain information because I think those would suggest that I'm attributing it to things that I, I actually do not want to attribute to it. But like it does seem to quote remember unquote uh, things over the course of conversations and have later answers be influenced by earlier answers and all that stuff. So uh, so I, I wonder if that's true that you couldn't you know I mean like even if we're not going to count uh, producing words as a form of behavior, which I wonder about. But like um, and um, but but I wonder if if it's if it's quite true that you couldn't ask it to plan to say things in future interactions that it would then say, or if not, if that's sort of says anything particularly fundamental about the, um, you know, about what its capacities are, that you couldn't do something that was very much like it, but that was, that was designed that way. I, I should also say uh, PhD and AHD, uh, ADHD. Sorry, I keep messing up the joke when I read off that name. PhD and ADHD uh, says, uh, why is a plan necessary for, for consciousness? Which you know, I think is a decent question. Oh, also. Yeah. Also, the, the reason what? I brought up planning, yeah. the reason I brought up planning is uh, I was trying to get at the fact that it doesn't have behavior other than accepting sentences and giving replies. It, it does the, like part of the way I can tell you're conscious is that you do more than accept what I'm saying and give a reply. You do other things. You you make dis other kinds of decisions as well. Now, <clears throat> I'm not saying, well, I'm not trying to draw too broad a conclusion there. I'm just saying that it doesn't pass the Turing test to me because all it does is talk. Yeah, I mean, I will say that uh, right up until this, you know, last few weeks when the chat GPT stuff uh, blew up, I've never heard anybody suggest that a Turing test would involve anything but talking, right? Every, every time I've ever seen a description of a Turing test, uh, it's it's all been about talking. Uh, but, you know, but I, I, I take your point that, like, say, okay, but well... You, but people have been arguing for decades that the Turing test, other people besides Searle, even people sure. who are fully bought into consciousness didn't think the Turing test adequate i don't even like dennett doesn't even think the turing test is adequate and he's done a whole lot more than searle and disagrees with searle and you know he's put a whole lot more thought into consciousness at a fundamental level 
yeah, maybe I will say I, I will just lay one of my own biases on the table here, and it's like very easy for me to just kind of uh, cast uh, aspersions on other people because because well, I'm, yeah, I'm, I know Dennett. I know Dennett went bad. Uh, well, no, 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 no. no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm not even talking about that. Okay. I just mean I just mean like um, uh, in, in fact, I don't even you know. I, I think I actually have a fairly high opinion of dead and even i just think uh that uh but i will say i feel a little funny casting dispersions because like a fair follow-up question is like okay smart guy what's your view and and my view is i have no idea right <laughs> like i don't i don't have a uh I, I don't really have a view about about consciousness i i have a sort of uncomfortable sensation that none of the extant views that i'm aware of feel like they can uh you know feel like they they quite address the core of the problem but you know i i'd like you know whatever you know if you're like a substance dualist or something that that seems obviously wrong but uh but like you know functionalism also kind of seems obviously wrong to me and like i think a lot of the dead stuff about consciousness seems that I, I i get this like uncomfortable sensation that it's like okay it's like telling very clever stories in ways that sort of um that that sort of uh that sort of don't quite engage with the the hardest problems that I don't know that I can justify. I could, I don't know that I can justify that, but yeah, fair enough. So, so I mean, but I I do really back from all of that. I mean, I I do take your larger point that you could very well think and plenty of people do think that, you know, passing a Turing test is, is insufficient, but uh, not because of any sort of larger skepticism about AI, just because you like, you just need a, you know, you just need a more rigorous battery of tests than just like whether it can trick people in conversation. So I see uh, Scott's back in the queue. So I'll try to make this last bit very, very brief. Sure. I just wanted to know how the book is coming with Bhaskar and that other guy. Uh, Mike Beggs. Uh, the uh, is... the, yep. The plan, I think, was the name of the book. Uh, the Blueprint is what it's called, yeah. So yeah, the third co-author is Mike Beggs, uh, who uh, I am a very big fan of. Uh, people, uh, if if you aren't familiar with him at all, he wrote one of my favorite articles about uh, Marxism and economics. Uh, it's called Zombie Marx. It's in uh, it's like a, an old Jacobin article, but if you just Google Zombie Marx, it'll come up right away. Uh, I I. I Made people read that in my capital class. I, I I think it's a really smart article about basically um, what's important to Marxism and why not to be dogmatic about it. But anyway, that's Mike Beggs, uh, who's a third co-author. Um, yeah, it is finally coming along a little bit. Uh, so the first of the chapters that I'm writing, I actually turned in a draft of to to Mike and Bhaskar a little while ago, and. Bhaskar sent back, uh, you know, like a revised version that I have not gotten a chance to look at yet. Uh, the current plan, we had a meeting with uh, Asher from Verso a little while ago. The current plan is to try to be done with it by the end of the summer of 2023. And um, I think, um, I don't know exactly what that means about when it's coming out. I think it might not be until early 2024. I'm not, I'm not 100% on that yet, but um but yeah, that's the plan. Um, okay, I am. Uh, thank you for this. Uh, okay. We'll, okay, we'll thank we'll you. Let, uh, 
we'll get uh, Scott's uh, round two thoughts, and then we'll probably wrap this up. Okay, this this may, might be short. Uh, have you have you had a chance? I know you've been very busy. Have you had a chance to review either the the quote unquote the Twitter file, or to have seen the uh, the bad faith with Brianna Joy Gray, Ryan Grimm, and Kashama Suant? Okay, I have not seen the bad faith. Uh, I, in fact, I, I haven't even like I, I saw a um, I saw like a tweet with a clip of it that was going around, uh, but I haven't even watched the clip. Uh, it looked like in the clip they were maybe arguing about the uh, the the railway, uh, like the rail strike issue, but the but. Uh, you can correct that if if they didn't actually get into that. But um, what's that? What it was entirely that's what it was entirely about, and it got very uh, heated. I think is the most diplomatic way I can put it. Okay, gotcha. Uh, yeah. So, all right. Let me briefly address both of those because those are big, both big topics, and, and they probably deserve much more than I'm going to give them right now. But. Uh, just, just, just like lightning round takes on both of those things. Uh, Twitter files. I think I have read most of that. I think there have been like what, like three rounds of it so far or something. Um, and I think I've read pretty much all of that. Uh, I, I take that seriously. Uh, I, I do have criticisms of the way it's being done. Um, I think that. I think they should really do. Like, I mean, I think the responsible thing to do would actually be to do it as like a big WikiLeaks style dump, like just just create a a database that like journalists could look at and draw their own conclusions. Because it's a little bit frustrating to see like these kind of tantalizing bits and pieces uh, ladled out in the way that they are. That like uh, oftentimes I'd like a lot more context or details to to like really form a judgment about some of these things. Uh, but that said, I'm I'm not at all the camp of the oh this is a nothing burger. What you guys are, you know, outraged because you just now realized that you know Twitter has mods or you know is is this uh, you know like yeah sure there's there's nothing here we didn't always know or anything like that or actually this is all totally fine. No, I I actually think this is um, like I actually think the picture all this paints should be thoroughly embarrassing to anybody who defended some of Twitter's uh, moderation policies in uh, you have a great voice, Harlow, nothing wrong with your voice. Uh, there's a, um, to everybody who defended Twitter's moderation policies in the past, um, especially people who defended the frankly, really, really bad way that they handled the Hunter Biden stuff that the, um, that, and, you know, I've seen a lot of people fall back on this kind of cope about, you know, using the phrase revenge port or whatever, as if the only issue were pictures of Hunter's cock, uh, rather than, um, like Twitter actually taking these crazy unprecedented steps to stop people from sharing news stories, uh, which had nothing to do with like graphic images. That was, that was not even hinted at in Twitter's justification at the time. The justification at the time was like, well, we decided that we think this might be like Russian disinformation, which is absolutely not something Twitter should be in the business of doing. And frankly, if, you know, I saw Bronco Marchantich point this out, if that had been like, if, if Twitter was run by a bunch of Republicans and they'd done that, 
to uh, suppress like any uh, people even sharing news articles about the Access Hollywood tape in 2016. People would be rightly outraged. I think they should be outraged about this. And I think that there is new information here. In fact, I think sometimes I've, I'm actually going on for a lot longer than I said I was going to. So I'm going to wrap up this part. But like um, sometimes people uh, should uh, uh, like there, I've seen people turn like just on a dime zero to 60 from like five minutes ago. They were saying shadow batting isn't real. Anybody who says it is is ridiculous to this is a nothing burger. We always knew there was shadow bad in it. It's like, yeah, no, I don't think that works. Right. I, I think there, I think this, this actually is quite bad. Now I would also point out that Elon Musk has openly announced his intention to continue the same policy. He actually tweeted freedom of speech is at freedom of reach. And we're going to max de boost hateful or negative. I love that negative uh, tweets. Um, and, you know, in, in general, I think, Elon sucks. Uh, He's a malevolent union-busting billionaire who's profoundly hypocritical and inconsistent on free speech issues. Um, And, you know, I I think he's somebody who it's appropriate to hate. Uh, But I also think that people are – like, I think I'm depressed by how many people who I often agree with about other issues I see who are responding to these in this very discoursey way right these very discourse driven ways like it's all about um you know do i like elon or do i not like elon do i like some media figure like matt taibbi or barry weiss or do i dislike them which you know i mean again i think there are good criticisms of all these people in this saga i think it's i think it's pretty bad that elon's just giving this information to like a couple of friendly journalists in barry weiss case his case very friendly she seems to be a fan of his for a long time rather than letting truly independent people take their own look and, and, you know, and like investigate the, you know, the original, uh, the original data and, and write informative long form articles and all that stuff. But the actual, what you think about the actual information should be independent of what you think of the people who are releasing it or why they're releasing it. Um, so that's, you know, that's roughly my take on the Twitter files, which I know that was like 10 minutes and I said I was just going to do lightning round. Uh, I really will do lightning round for the uh, for the other part, which is this. I don't think it's a state secret that I don't particularly like uh, Brianna Joy Gray. Um, I do like Ryan Grimm. That said, I'm probably closer to her than to him on this. Uh, from like again, I haven't actually watched this, but just from what I can glean, because even though. Like I always thought that like force the vote was dumb as shit. It was, uh, it it never made any sense to me to get mad at uh, members of Congress for not trying like a particular, frankly, really poorly thought out parliamentary maneuver that like a podcaster told them to do. <laughs> like and say, oh, if you don't try this particular parliamentary maneuver to advance Medicare for all, then you're a sellout and you really don't really care about Medicare for all. I always thought that was extremely stupid, but. I actually think you should get mad at the squad with the honorable exception of Rashida Tlaib and, you know, Bernie Sanders, if we're counting him as part of the extended squad. Um, but I actually think you should get mad at the squad about the, uh, the, the rail strike vote. I think that's appropriate. I, and I will stick to my lightning round intentions on this one and just say for the long version of why I think that's appropriate. Uh, look at the last article that I had in the daily beast, which is all about that. 
Cool, thank you. Uh, do you think, my mentioning force the vote, do you think that Republicans are going to force the vote on Kevin McCarthy? There's been uh, of the more conservative, Marjorie Taylor Greene has said she's supporting Kevin McCarthy, but some of the, there's been rumblings of- What, 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 vote, what, what vote would be the there to force the House? Well, right, but I mean, like the original idea with force the vote was that, was not just that they- squad would vote against Nancy Pelosi, which sure sounds good to me. I think you should probably always vote against Nancy Pelosi on principle, but that the idea of force the vote was that they were going to threaten not to, not to vote for her as a bargaining chip in order to force a vote on Medicare for all. That's what force the vote meant. Uh, right. Right. So, so as, as, as the strategy, but not, not, I guess as the tactic the, yeah. the, to get what they want. Do you think that there's any possibility of crazy right wing Republicans tr taking that tactic and using it against McCarthy. Yeah. I mean, like, is there's like, is there something that they want to like hold a vote on that they would be for forcing? Or do you just mean like that, that there might be crazy Republicans who just vote against McCarthy because they want somebody more extreme. That that's more my point. Is yeah. That the, the major, the majority is so slim that they could, that, uh, you know, with, with like cinema, going independent now and not maybe not caucusing with the Democrats. I think she said she's not, um, but taking a similar tact in, in dealing with the house, uh, speaker of the house vote. Yeah. Um, sure. I mean, that seems plausible to me. I mean, the, uh, the, the Republican caucus has always been hard to run. Um, you know, think about all the stuff, the, like the Freedom Caucus did that used to drive John Boehner crazy and the way that they uh, they weren't even able to do the Obamacare repeal because they couldn't agree on, um, uh, like they couldn't agree on a replacement and all that stuff. So yeah, I think that would be very plausible. Um, I, I mean, whether that'll actually get them what they want is a different question. Um, like in other words, like sure, could some of the more extreme Republicans vote against McCarthy as speaker? Yeah, for sure. In fact, I'd kind of be surprised if none of them did. Uh, like that seems, that seems like something that would probably be probably happen. Um, and then like, if the larger point is like, okay, having a more confrontational attitude towards like their caucus leadership, are they going to like get stuff from that? And by analogy, should like the squad do the same thing? It's like, yeah, maybe. Right. I mean, as, as a sort of general point, I'm, I'm relatively friendly to that. I, I mean, I think the sort of specific idea of forcing a floor vote of Medicare for all never made sense to me because it was, you know, that would have been um, all the people, all the Democrats who are against Medicare for all are open about it. They don't make a secret of it. Uh, and so it's like there would just be no drama or even new information from that. It's just, yeah, I mean, half the Democrats yeah. in the House are openly against it, and all the Republicans are, so it would just go down two to one with no drama, and it would, like, maybe be on C-SPAN for a few minutes. It probably wouldn't even make CNN. Um, but, like, sure, should they be more confrontational in general? Yeah, probably. I mean, I don't know. Like, there are obviously limits to what you can accomplish with, like, a tiny number of people, but um, but – I mean, if nothing else, it would do my heart good to to see people telling Nancy Pelosi or I guess Hakeem Jeffries now to fuck off more often. So, you know, I'm for it. <laughs> Same here. All, all right. right. Th thank you for taking my call. Uh, all right. Thanks, Scott. Um, 
I'm going to cut it off there because uh, we've been going for almost an hour and uh, it's been a long day. But thank you. This was a lot of fun. I really appreciate the calls. I really appreciate the range of questions. Uh, I'm definitely probably I'm going to do two more of these this weekend. Probably what about the effect of altruism article in Jacobin and what about the Adolf Reed article in current affairs. But uh, next week, I will definitely do another one of these AMAs because this was fun and I, I'd like to do one again soon. Um, I will put a link to the New York live show on January 22nd in the description uh, when I publish this. Um, and uh, yeah, 